chapter 4 in Romans, the entire chapter, uh, 1197 in your pew Bible. Paul also continues with his habit throughout the book of Romans to pose his answers in the form of answers to rhetorical questions. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David, also speaking of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, unbelief made him waver. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespass, and raised for our justification. When we began our study in the book of Romans, we said that this is a pretty small church. Most scholars believe it's around 100 uh, believers made up of both Gentiles and Jews, but primarily uh, Gentiles, because about six to eight years before this letter was written to the Christians in Rome, 
Claudius, who was the emperor, had expelled all the Jews, about 50,000 from the city. And they stayed outside the city until uh, Claudius passed away and the next Caesar allowed them to return. And some of them, while they were out, became believers, some under even Paul's ministry. It's one of the reasons he knows uh, some of the believers in Rome, even though he has never been there. And so it makes it an odd statement, verse 1. If primarily the audience are Gentile Christians, why does Paul begin talking about Abraham? Well, then shall we say, was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh. Obviously, they probably knew who Abraham was in history. Even outside of the Jewish faith, Abraham was an historical figure. But why bring him up? And a lot of people have interpreted Abraham in chapter 4 as an example, as a model of someone who had great faith. Kind of the way people look at Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11. But I think Paul's doing something more profound here than that. I don't think Paul is primarily addressing Abraham's faith, at least as an example. I think he's making a different statement. And in order to understand that, you have to understand what what just transpired. He has just spent two whole chapters, chapters one and two, saying that something has gone profoundly wrong with his creation because of sin, because of evil in the world. That is, humanity has distorted the image of God, has distorted the original design for human beings on the planet. God's chief creation that he called good at one time. And because of the distortion of the design, it's also rejection of the designer. And so last week we saw that the gospel was the solution, not for an individual person per se, but really for the entire human race that would believe. Now you're seeing why faith is so much. Because this gospel that corrects the distortion of the design and makes a whole relationship at peace with the the designer is through a gospel about Jesus Christ, what he accomplished, the Son of God. And so now Paul turns and says, okay, now let me give you the goal of the gospel The goal of the gospel is not your individual salvation. The goal of the gospel is the family of God. The goal of the gospel is to save us out of the world and into a family, his family. And Abraham is the beginning of that family. That's what Paul is doing in chapter 4 that is, far more profound and deeper than simply he was a man of great faith. He believed a promise. The key sentence in the whole chapter, and if we run out of time, you can spend it on 17 alone. Verse 17, as it is written, I made you, talking about Abraham, the father of many nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This new family is made up of people of every nation, tribe, and tongue or language. This morning, I want us to briefly look at this family. What kind of family is it that we now belong to, that we are now part of? What are those marks? 
And the first one is simply a family by faith. That is, the nature of this family is created as we receive faith, we move into this family. That is, the gospel creates a family through believing that gospel, not through flesh. Paul's been making the argument that not all Israel, those physically related to Abraham, are part of this family. They're part of the physical family of Abraham, but not the faith family of Abraham. Verse 3, Abraham believed God, but what did he believe? We know that it was counted to him as righteous, that is, the basis of his salvation, the basis of his relationship of being right with God, at peace with God, which we will look at next week. But what did he specifically believe? He believed a promise that was given to him in Genesis 12 when he's called out of the city of Ur as a pagan, as an ungodly man, called out and said, I will make out of you an extraordinary family. And our text says that he had hope beyond hope, hope against hope, because he had no family. He had Sarah and both of them were old. In fact, all the evidence was contrary to the promise and yet he believed. So not only is this faith, this family one of faith in a promise and not of flesh, it is also not the result of a performance, at least ours. It's not a result of works that we do. If Abraham, verse 2, was justified by works, he has something to brag about. He has something to boast about, but not before God. That is, you are a Christian, you are not a Christian, because you behave like one. You behave like a Christian because you are one. Abraham was justified not by his works, but by his faith. For Abraham believed before there ever was a law. So Paul, when he wants to begin to talk about what, what Abraham believed, he gives us a picture of that in verses 4 and 5 when he talks about justification. He says, now to the one who works, he gets wages. And it's not counted as a gift, but as what is due him. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. God declares Abraham righteous and Abraham believed it. That is what made him part of the family. That's what makes you part of the family. It's what makes me part of the family. And it makes what anybody out there is part of the family. Abraham was just as ungodly as the rest of us. Abraham started at the same place that all of us start, distorting the design and rejecting the designer. And yet God saves the ungodly through a gospel of propitiation, which we talked about last week. The averting of God's wrath, not the dismissal, not the dispensation of his wrath, but the propitiation, that is taking that wrath that is due sin and emptying it on his son. That's why David is, is called now as the next witness from Psalm 32. In verse 7 of Romans uh, chapter 4, he said, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are what? Forgiven and whose sins are covered. The only way that's possible 
is if someone else pays, someone else receives the cost of sin. For the wages of sin is death. David is celebrating with those whose sins have not been counted against them, but were counted against Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin. The gospel is the good news that God has dealt with sin once and for all. Our sins have been forgiven because Jesus has absorbed the cost himself. He is the propitiation. And we enter this family by faith in that gospel. But it's not just a family of faith, is it? There's another mark. Because there's people from every tribe, people and tongue, every language, every ethnic group. Because this multi-ethnic family, the doors have to be wide open for all or whosoever may come. And at the same time, it's a family with a standard. The standard is you must have faith alone. It's not who you're related to. It's not your record that you bring. It's not your potential of effect in our community for the sake of Christ. It's simply by faith alone in what Christ has done alone. And that creates a tension in the family of God. How so? The family of God has a tension because it has both circumcised and uncircumcised in it. It has people of every tribe, people, and tongue. The doors to the family must remain wide for all to come. All must be welcomed to the family of God, even those that we personally don't like. The church is the only place where enemies become family. Don't miss that. Every other organization, it's of like people. The church is the gathering of the unlike and the unliked. That they might they might encounter the love. The word hospitality is the one that Paul will use over and over again later in this letter as he goes and gets very practical. The word hospitality simply means welcoming strangers among us. This past summer, the General Assembly of the PCA adopted a change that they rarely do, and that is the calling of an elder. They brought it into line with something that is said in Titus and, and Timothy that's already there and has been part of the scriptures for the last 2,000 years, that one of the key requirements of to be a ruling or teaching elder in the PCA is that you, have the, you are hospitable. And what that means isn't that the elder tends to have people from the church over to his house. That's not what the word hospitality means. It's not having people that are already found into your home. It is having people who are still lost, who are not part of the family yet. The stranger, the one who is not liked and not like. And that is to be the mark of this family. 
And at the same time, we must maintain that membership means something. That it means in order to be part of this family, you can be part of the family only by faith. That there must be a credible profession of faith. I love the way uh, Pastor Greg used to put hold this tension together because this is the hard part. We want to run to the mission or we want to run to the membership at the exclusion of the other. And Greg would hold these together by using three words. We need to belong before we believe and before we behave. And if we get that out of order, if we get that wrong, what it ends up is we become uh, Pharisees and create walls that people must come over before they can become part of the community. So if belonging means membership in your mind, then no one can be here until they already believe. Unless there's a way to belong in our community without membership first, that they might come and try on what we are saying, what the scriptures teach, and wrestle through the hard things like this chapter and wear it for a while until the point where the penny drops and they believe. And then we can have the conversation about what does it mean to be a believer before a watching world, to be in line with the gospel, to let go of membership, is to render the mission meaningless. For we are, the gospel creates a family. And to let go of mission is to, re, is to render membership meaningless. For the family is on a mission to make disciples of all nations. We are called to live as a family with that kind of tension. The third mark of, the, of this family is a family with an inheritance. And this is the good news. We like inheritance. Wait till you hear what we got. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring, that's us, that we would be heirs of the world. Did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. We are heirs of the world. God has promised us everything is ours now one way to look at it is the world as is in that case it's like getting your your parents 30 year old car that's been in the garage and doesn't work that's not much of an inheritance or a house that the foundation is cracked and breaking up and the best thing you can do is just tear it all down and start all over god is not promising us this broken world good thing. He's promising first to come back and make all things new, to make the world right as he has made us right with him. And then he will put it into a bow and gift it to us. That's what the inheritance of this family has. And that's why the promised land was never meant to be the end 
The promised land was never to be the goal. The promised land, whether they were walking around in the wilderness or even when they were occupying part of the land that God gave them, it was a mere token. All it was was an appetizer. It was the four pieces of shrimp and some cocktail sauce. That's all the promised land was meant to be. But too many people that claim to be part of the family have made it the on course. And it was never meant to be the entree. And so we are, like C.S. Lewis said, we're playing in mud pies when he has given us the vacation at the sea. The whole thing is ours. This is my father's world. When Pastor Babcock wrote that poem, This is My Father's World, he was walking around Niagara Falls. He had a pastorate up in upstate New York, and he had this uh, a tendency to take long walks in nature, and he would write what he saw, and it ended up being a 16-stanza poem called This is My Father's World. He died at the age of 42 in 1901, and his wife, Catherine, she... She published these poems of his and someone, a friend of his, put it to music that we sing today. But only what? Three or four stanzas of it. When he saw the world, he saw his inheritance. Do you? Do I? Or is it something that we look at and we see that it is something to escape It is something to use up and destroy. It is something to distort and to disfigure and to decay. Or are we recognizing that it is our inheritance? This promise is not to a single nation. What a waste. What a small promise to take this beautiful, incredible creation and say, well, I'm just going to give it to this little nation, this backwaters of the Roman Empire. No, it's to a single family of every nation. God's promise is that big. Do you see that? Verse 17, I'm going to make you a father of many. Even his name means father of many. And it's an irrevocable promise. It can't be changed. It can't be altered. It can't be taken back. It is for us. Which brings us to the last beautiful mark of this family. It is one of hope. It's a family of hope. In fact, it's hope against hope. It's against all the evidence. This young couple, he's old, she's old. They've not had children. And this promise comes that not only are they going to have a child, but they're going to have many children. As, as many as the sand on the seashore or as the stars in the heavens. Can you imagine his, his mind's getting around this idea that I'll just take one Just one kid. He could have the runniest nose. He he could be the dullest light in, in, in the earth. Just give me the child. No, I don't. One child is too small. I'm going to give you a family that is going to be made up of every tribe, people, and language of the world. Of not only of your time, but of every time. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. Or when he looked at his beautiful wife who had been barren for so many years. 
Abraham believed God and he believed this promise. You are evidence of that promise. Your children and your children's children and your children's children's children will be evidence of this promise. Let me just, as we conclude, give you the paradox that Paul is referring to here when he talks about in verse 4 about this family. I mean, in in chapter 4 about this family. First, this family gives us the son. It is this family that God creates through the promise of Genesis chapter 12 that gives us the son, Jesus Christ who reverses the curse by his own death and that we, by faith, is counted as our righteousness. But here's the paradox. Not only is it the family that gives us the son, it's the son that gives us the family. And you say, which came first, the chicken or the egg? The answer is yes. Hear these words. It was counted, verse 23, to him, were not written for his sake alone. It is his life for our life, his death for our death, his resurrection for our resurrection. The way Paul will sum that up in Galatians chapter 2, he will say, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the one who loved me and has delivered himself up for me. And so... Not only do we have a family that produces the son and a son that creates the family, but we now have a family business. We were born into a family business that proclaims this gospel to a broken world. That it won't always be like this. That the that the deaths that we experience, the losses, the the divorces, the the rebellious children, the the houses that are falling apart, the the community, the systemic racism in our culture, the the, uh, creating slaves out of our children to serve people around the world as sex slaves, all of that is coming to an end and will be made new. And all made up for every last here God has kept into a jar and will not waste one of them, but make them new. God is restoring all things that have been disfigured by sin and evil. And it was inaugurated by his death and his resurrection. And we get the privilege of entering into this business of proclaiming this gospel to the world. People of every tribe, people in language. We get to tell them this is not, this is not Satan's world. This is our father's world. He has not abandoned it. He has not left it to our demise and ruin. But he will make it all new. And then he's going to give it back to us. You ever get that around your mind that sometimes a, a child will ruin a toy and the only thing you can do is, is take it back and, and work on it until, it until it's right. And then you do what with it? You give it right back to the child. 
That's the picture of what God is going to do with us, with our world. He's going to take this messed up world and he's going to take it and make it new and he's going to give it back and say, see here, this is what I intended on giving you, but you ruined. But I have taken it back so that I can make it new. But not to keep for myself, but to give to you because you are my beloved. And what do you give your beloved but what you love? And he gives us this beautiful place and says it is yours. We are not going to heaven. Heaven is coming to earth. And our king will be with us all the days of our lives. And there'll be no need for a temple or a sun or a moon or stars because he'll be with us for all eternity and the world can never be messed up again. That's the good news we proclaim and that's our family business that we believe. These are the marks of the church. These are the marks of the family that gospel creates that you are part of. And the only way for you to experience those marks, the only way for you to get a taste of those marks, understand we are the appetizer. We are not the, on, the, 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 the course, the main course is the church itself, the local church with all of its uh, crazy uncles and, and uh, aunts who pinch your cheeks and all of the craziness that goes on with our divisions and our misunderstandings and hurt feelings and all the things that we try to do and fail to do. And, and you look at all of those things and you say, who wants to be part of the church? Jesus does. He looks at it and he says, you're my bride. You are my beloved. We will spend eternity with each other. So get used to it. Let's pray. Father, this is your world. Don't let me forget that. And though the wrong seems off so strong, you're still the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. This world is our inheritance, Lord. This strange and wonderful family. And this mission is our family's business. In Jesus' name.